Welcome to your favorite F word podcast, where we dive deep into conversations around food, fitness, feelings, with the occasional fuck thrown in. We're your hosts, Sarah and Nicola, owners of Paradigm Nutrition and Performance, nutrition coaches, besties, and most importantly, humans. This show is for coaches, self-growth-oriented folks, active humans, or anyone looking to deepen their understanding and relationship with food, movement, and themselves. Thanks for tuning in, and we cannot wait to share this space with you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Your Favorite F Word. We're here again, Sarah and Nicola. (laughs) (laughs) and we have a super interesting and hot topic to discuss today Um, this is going to be kind of like a follow-up slash updated episode of one of the first episodes we ever did Um, and today we're going to be talking about the menstrual cycle and specifically how the menstrual cycle may or may not affect performance Um, we're going to go through what the current research is suggesting what previous thoughts we and lots of other people had, how those have changed a little bit, um, and then some considerations for yourself in navigating your training and nutrition through your own menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's important too to say like, I don't know, I feel a little conflicted because this is one of those subjects where this idea of like being evidence-based doesn't always equate to like how you might actually coach or how you might actually apply things to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of like uh, an in- a little bit of like an internal conflict around that because we want to be basing our um, protocols off of like science and well-documented studies and things like that. And at the same time, this is one of those areas in which like the individuality matters maybe more mm-hmm. than what the exact research is saying For so sure. while I don't think our previous episode was like wrong I think we were maybe taking things to an extent or to a degree that like maybe didn't apply in the same way to everyone mm-hmm. but I think we came about that episode from just like what we were seeing with clients, what we had noticed with ourselves. Um, And of course, like the greater dialogue about just like how often women are excluded from research, Mm -hmm. um, how hard it is to control for the variations in our hormones throughout our cycle. um, And just wanting to give like voice to the concerns, complaints and frustrations around like women's pain um, and how kind of just like we were being disregarded or like treated like small men. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's, it might be helpful even to go back and listen to like that episode, because I still think like there were lots of great takeaways and yet I think we've kind of softened or mm, taken a different approach to how we have those conversations now with clients and how we really apply like what we have learned. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a big reason why this idea of cycle syncing blew up so much in the first place, right? Because Naturally, women were understudied in the research, even when they were included in research, it's really hard to control for all of the variables that are happening Mm -hmm. and all of Mm -hmm. the different things that are happening throughout the cycle. And cycle syncing was a way almost for menstruating folk to kind of like take that power back or like have some, have some 
reasoning or understanding for like what's going on. Right. And there is two pieces to all of this research in this conversation. There is the subjective side, which is the side where we as menstruating folk, lots of us do experience pain, you know, changes in performance, et cetera, on a subjective level. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's the other side, which is what most of the research looks at is the objective side. So physiologically what's going on in our bodies and is the physiological changes correlated with changes or no change in performance. Right. And it's really hard to dissociate the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where a lot of this like tough spot in this discussion comes from is there are these two sides and we can't ignore either side. Right. Um, So finding that sweet spot where we're looking at, okay, what does the evidence say, but also what is the client experiencing or what are we experiencing? And that's really what we kind of want to go through today and discuss and um, hopefully bring some good light to the situation, to the (laughs) landscape. Yeah. Um, So do we want to like kind of get into like an overview of the cycle, just like a little refresher? Yeah. Why don't you walk through, walk through that? Okay. So a disclaimer first, we are talking about a period not impacted by hormonal birth control. So in this conversation, we are looking at only normal cycles, big quotes. Um, So for folks who are not taking any sort of contraception. Mm -hmm. Assuming that ovulation is occurring. Yes. And there's no like menstrual dysfunction inside of that. Yes. Yeah. So what is considered to be a normal cycle is a cycle with uh, full range going through all the phases that is lasting anywhere from 21 to 35 days for six months in a row. Um, The menstrual cycle is characterized by a cyclical fluctuation of several hormones. But again, in this conversation, we're looking primarily at estrogen and progesterone. So estrogen and progesterone levels are low at the onset of our period. So day one and estrogen levels will gradually increase throughout that first half of our, or ish first chunk, first phase of our cycle, the follicular phase. Um, and it'll peak just before ovulation, which tends to happen around day 14 for most people in that kind of like normal range. After ovulation, progesterone levels will increase, um, peaking during the middle of the luteal phase. So luteal phase is the second half of our cycle, and then will gradually decrease um, until the point of getting our period. Estrogen levels will decrease a little bit from their pre-ovulation high, but remain somewhat elevated in that second half or luteal phase, and then again, decreasing near the late end of the luteal phase in anticipation of the period. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, there's also going to be changes in LH and FSH and testosterone, but these are not going to be as prevalent in terms of like the research or what we're really talking about today. So really we're just talking about estrogen and progesterone and their fluctuations throughout the cycle. Mm -hmm. And typically to put that in a nutshell, the first half of our cycle is generally the lower hormone phase. And the second half of our cycle is the higher hormone phase, um, with progesterone being, highest in that mid luteal phase. Um, and that's going to be important because of what the research shows about progesterone and estrogen and how it affects our, um, performance. 
Um, another preface here, which we'll get into a little bit in more detail, but when we talk about performance, we're using it as an umbrella term, but in the research, it's often broken down into anaerobic, which is like short sprints, basically. Um, so anything under like two, three minutes, uh, aerobic, which is like that longer endurance kind of piece and then strength. So they generally separate and they do tests, um, whether one research study looks at all three, or maybe they're just looking at one piece. Um, so we'll talk about kind of the changes in that, but when we look at estrogen, estrogen, <laughs> estrogen <laughs> and progesterone, under that performance umbrella, typically estrogen is a positive for exercise performance. So it promotes uh, glycogen sparing and it seems to have a excitatory effect in the central nervous system. So it helps our central nervous system produce force, um, which is important for all three of those uh, different pieces of performance. Whereas progesterone, on the other hand, has a net negative effect. It inhibits the uh, central nervous system. And it also elevates our body's like temperature, um, which can influence things like dehydration, overheating, and all of that kind of stuff, um, which I think a lot of us can relate to um, when it comes to exercise in our luteal phase when progesterone is high. But those two hormones and th that mechanism specifically is kind of why this research started and blew up because the research showed that those things happen. And then it was kind of taken without supporting evidence that that means that when estrogen is high, performance is good. And when progesterone is high, performance is bad. Right. So like we have talked about in the past, many people tend to find that in that first half of their cycle, after their period is kind of settled, um, so mid follicular phase when estrogen is starting to rise and then right before ovulation, if estrogen is a positive for, for performance, then we're seeing like really good performance. Generally, that's when we have seen um, on average, lots of folks PRing or just like feeling really good in their training. And then in the second half of our cycle, yes, there's some estrogen, um, but it's kind of offset with the progesterone. And that's where this idea that like, okay, performance is probably going to be shittier. We're going to feel worse. Strength is going to be off. All of that kind of stuff has kind of like come in as the ideology around it. Mm -hmm. And then the other mechanism that lots of the research looks at is substrate availability and metabolism. So again, because of these fluctuations in hormones, um, basically it just is referring to our body's ability to utilize fats versus carbohydrates. And so lots of the research suggests that carbohydrate oxidation is lower during the mid to late luteal phase. So for things like anaerobic and strength, where we rely so heavily on carbohydrates, then again, presents this idea that our performance is going to be decreased because our body is not as able to use carbohydrates at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't need to necessarily go into that deeply, but those are kind of the two main mechanisms that the research is looking at. And when we talk about it at that level, it makes sense why this kind of blew up, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know the exact like, like historical timeline of this, but I would imagine that it's that kind of research that happens first. And then we start seeing more application into actual performance. Yes. And then, I mean, through that, we start to recognize just how fucking hard it is to control. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, reading some studies, even just looking at like, um, for a normal cycle, there's still like a nine, what is it? 14 day difference for what's considered a normal cycle and so within that you might have subject one and you're testing her in the mid luteal phase for her that date might be different and her actual levels of progesterone might be super different from another person who's got a much longer cycle Mm -hmm. and so like that none of that is even counting for people who have abnormal cycles, people who are on, you know, the hundreds of different kinds of birth control. So yeah. it becomes really, really tricky. Yeah. Um, so like Sarah said, I think it's like that, those initial pieces of like the substrate availability and then looking at like how hormones affect, um, like generally affect performance that th- these ideas kind of came to light. And we started thinking, you know, like women are, identifying that their performance is struggling okay cool now we know why Mm -hmm. um but without actually testing what that performance looks like um you know there really isn't much significant evidence to show that this is a universal thing Mm -hmm. and so that's where we'll kind of like dig in a little bit more yeah and so now they have started doing those tests right because they have that research supporting that these changes are happening Um, And really what the current research is showing is that in studies that look at perceived performance, so subjective research, majority of the time, people, menstruating folk are rating their performance to be relatively worse during their bleeding phase. So the early follicular phase and the late luteal phase. Mm -hmm. So women are doing this research and they're saying, yes, my performance is worse during my period. And when I'm PMSing, right. So we have that piece. We already knew that, but now it's in the research. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the objective side, there's lots of conflicting evidence, but when we look at the reviews and the analyses, objective performance. So looking at anaerobic, aerobic and strength related tests, do not report any clear or consistent effects of the changes in the hormones affecting those actual performance metrics. Mm -hmm. So that's where we have this disconnect where 90 plus percent of women are being like, yeah, my performance is worse, but then they're actually doing the tests and their performance isn't worse. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it's like, okay, what gives here? And that's where, where the application is really, really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky one. And I think that's why, again, like we'll focus on how individual this is. And really that's been the takeaway um, from the majority of the papers. It's like, we know this is happening and yet there's no significant data to support it happening on a broad level or that everybody's experience is the same. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we need to go into uh, the current research in much more detail. But one thing that I did want to mention is that in the studies that are showing decreases in performance, which again, out of the number of studies is very few, 
it is appearing that muscular strength is the most heavily impacted compared to anaerobic or aerobic uh, performance. So the tests of muscular strength, which vary widely throughout um, the research, but it's typically looking at like leg press or leg extension or something like that, right? Their maximal force production. Um, that one has more supporting research to show that it, that the phases do have an effect, um, compared to those other performance indicators. Mm -hmm. There's lots of conflicting ones when we look at like endurance. There's also like an interesting change when there's, um, like a sport focused test versus just like endurance in general. Um, and just like looking at how mindset impacts this, how like technical sports might be impacted versus, you know, just like a run or something like that. Um, so it does really get confusing, but generally, like Sarah said, strength is typically the one that we can pinpoint the most at this time. Yeah. From an objective Mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, do we want to go into some of no, the limitations, ahead. I feel like yeah, is limitations. Helpful yeah. 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 So do you want to start with the high versus low responders? Yeah. So like Nicola mentioned before, there's obviously so many confounding variables when it comes to studying this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of them is that they there are people that are what are called high responders and people what are called that are called low responders when it comes to the changes in hormones that occur throughout the cycle. And so what this means is that some people are more sensitive to those fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone. And I did a bunch of this research when I was doing my master's thesis. So when people have menstrual dysfunction or menstrual disorders like severe PMS or PMDD, their baseline hormone fluctuations are this are very similar to those who don't experience the symptoms that come with those. Okay. But for whatever reason, their body is less able to cope with those changes. So it causes more inflammation, more of like a, um, kind of like a negative response or experience. Yeah. yeah, You're hit more heavily. Yeah. So if we're doing a research study and we have both high and low responders in it, well, the high responders might show a negative impact on performance, even though the hormones are exactly the same, whereas the low responders might not. Mm -hmm. So that is a limitation. Um, And that's from a subjective and objective piece, right? Um, Some people just subjectively feel worse. Have a worse fucking time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Uh, there's that. In terms of like subjective bias too, I think there does become this like self-fulfilling prophecy, which we talked about quite a bit in the last episode um, with this idea that like, if we feel bad, it's very easy to think like, okay, I feel bad, therefore I'm going to perform bad. And then we do perform poorly because we, not necessarily because our physiology is preventing us from performing well, but because literally we're approaching our training session or our sport with a mindset that we're going to be shitty at it because we don't feel our best. Yeah. Um, and so within that, there are a few studies that are specifically based on athletes. So again, differentiating from just like a recreational um, 
exerciser yeah versus like an athlete um there were many reports that menstrual symptoms were like distracting so if you were playing maybe like a high technical sport lots of pressure but you were experiencing cramps or worried that like um there was even one uh interview that said like a woman was really nervous that she was going to like bleed through into her uniform and you can imagine how like distracting that would be yeah Um, I'm also picturing like swimmers or people who are wearing like smaller uniforms how distracting it would be to feel like you were on edge because you were nervous about bleeding through your uniform and how that might impact your mindset and ultimately performance um and then there is this idea that we or athletes might be conflating discomfort with impaired performance. And that's not to like gaslight anybody um, because definitely every experience is absolutely real. And yet again, it kind of plays into how we're, how our mindset is approaching things. And if we feel discomfort, it can be easy to assume that discomfort means shitty performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of subjective bias going on there um in many different capacities I just thought about like I don't know if this has ever happened to you but like doing like a squat clean when you have your period and getting buried at the bottom of that squat and being like I think Um, I just like shot my tampon out or like I'm like bleeding on the floor yeah (laughs) like I don't want to stand that up after that you know (laughs) like I will say that I have done what was I doing? Leg press. And I literally like started bleeding through my shorts. And I was like, yeah. well, this is a good set. Here we go. Yeah. Good for <laughs> you. Like, Val, give me your sweater. I need to wrap it around yeah. me as I stand up. Yeah. Fuck. So yeah, obviously those things impact us from a subjective standpoint, right? So those cannot mm-hmm. be ignored. For sure. Um, but is it like our body is incapable of performing? Not necessarily. No. Yeah. 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 Um, another Um, limitation to the research is going to be that a lot of the studies are done like in the short term. So oftentimes they just look over one cycle. So they'll test the athletes, you know, during each phase over one cycle. Um, which obviously if you're doing a similar test that frequently, that can be, that can have issues. It could be a relatively easy or hard cycle, right? mm -hmm. We all experience these changes in that when like one period is like, you know, a few days and nice and light and you barely even notice it was there. And then the next month you're like, holy fuck, I'm dying. Um, <laughs> so that short-term nature of the studies is a limitation. Um, it would be nice to have research over like maybe a period of six months um, and have multiple tests in the same phase for the same subject. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like that sounds nice too, but even that gets complicated because like think about how much stress impacts how you experience your cycle as well. Yeah. And like if you are going through a stressful time, it's hard to determine like, is it the stress or is it the cycle? Is it the right. combination? Like things like that. Yeah. Um, so it just like, yeah, further makes everything more complicated. Yeah. Um, there are also some like limitations in terms of like sampling biases. So many of the kind of like newer studies, especially the ones around like athletes, um, are taken around that general population, like college students. And so when um, studies are looking for participants, think about like if you are someone who has like a really shitty period and you see um Uh, like a flyer up asking like, hey, want to come sign up for this study? It's going to require you to perform like a maximal exercise during your period. You probably won't sign up. 
because you already know you tend to feel shitty versus like, are you a person who has pretty light periods and you're an athlete and you're like, oh, fuck yeah, I'll go test that. That's going to skew the results as well. And so like, even on like the sampling level, those kind of biases can show up. Um, and I'm, yeah, that, that's a whole other thing is like yeah. looking at where our participants are coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And these limitations are limitations to most research, mm-hmm. right? Like there's always subjective biases. There's always sampling biases. Like lots of these are hard to work around. Um, and the only workaround is really to just keep doing research and have more and more studies. Um, but it's important to acknowledge the limitations, especially when we do have that disconnect between the subjective and objective. Like these are some reasons why that might be. Yeah. And one of the last kind of limitations that we came across was just looking at like how fluctuation in performance happened throughout the cycle um, and that research might not even be sensitive enough to pick it up. So like these kind of like micro changes that are happening, like, I don't know about you, but I have like maybe an hour or two hour window around ovulation where I have insane cramps. Right. And like, would that be picked up in a study? I don't know. Right. Would that impact how I showed up? Maybe. Um, but also like looking at a hormonal level too, like an experiential level, um, but hormonal level as well. Mm-hmm. So lots of, lots of limitations there. Um, we're going to get into some considerations and takeaways for today, but I really just wanted to spend a minute just talking about menstrual dysfunction, um, partly because this is what my master's research was on and I like to talk about it. Um, but it's also important in this conversation as well. Um, so menstrual dysfunction ranges from anything to like PMDD or PMS, where we have a normal cycle, we are ovulating, but we're having severe symptoms around it. Um, individuals with non-ovulatory periods, so where they're not actually ovulating, missing your periods. There's so many types of menstrual dysfunction. Um, and obviously the higher, the level of dysfunction, the more severe impact we're going to have on performance. And so what the research suggests is that menstrual dysfunction is actually typically, obviously there's like anomalies, but it's often driven by two not too much exercise, but high intensity exercise without enough fuel and calories in order to support that. And so it's less about, you know, overtraining and more about under eating. And there's so many reasons why this happens. A lot of it to do with the pressures that women and menstruating folk especially feel to maintain a certain body composition. Um, But mix that in with like busy school schedules and, you know, travel and stuff like that for these higher level athletes. Often the research is suggesting that any menstrual dysfunction that is happening is due to a lack of calorie intake. Um, So that's really important in this conversation too, in that if you are experiencing huge changes in your performance throughout your cycle, maybe that is something that you want to look at. Um, because obviously if we're having menstrual dysfunction of any sort, it's going to further impact the ways in which our cycle is affecting our training. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Can I just confirm? I feel like there's maybe a difference between like having certain menstrual dysfunctions and having menstrual dysfunction as a result of under eating. Cause I don't think we can conclusively say that all menstrual it's dysfunction. Correct. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there is a difference there and there's lots of underlying mechanisms, but when we're looking at this population, I see under eating and low, we're talking about like highly active individuals. Exactly. Gotcha. That low energy availability is a huge, Mm -hmm. huge piece of that. Obviously we still have like that responder piece where some people Mm -hmm. are high responders, some people are are low responders, et cetera. Um, But I think it's important to talk about energy availability in this conversation because it drives a lot of this. And when we look at considerations, it's one that is within our control um, in order to mitigate some of the effects that we might feel. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like often we hear maybe this on a more like client level that it's um a confusion around like overtraining versus underfueling mm-hmm. and generally most people like 99% of people are not actually overtraining but they are under eating and under recovering for the amount of training they're doing so it's mm-hmm. less about overtraining overtraining is actually very hard to accomplish because yeah. our bodies are built to adapt and withstand a lot but if we're underfueling for that, that's when we're going to get into trouble. That's where we're going to, um, you know, have more menstrual dysfunction, if any, or like start to see it arise. That's when we're going to be under recovered, start seeing like um, damaging effects to hormones, to potentially like injuries and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing to consider too, because there's a belief that it's like, oh, you know, I'm just like overtraining. Mm. Right. Probably not. You're probably not pushing yourself to that point. Most people are not. It's the fact that you are not recovering and eating enough. And if you're someone with performance goals, that becomes even more important because Mm -hmm. in the research, it's talked about overtraining versus overreaching and Mm -hmm. overreaching, which is pushing the upper limits of your performance capacity is absolutely necessary in order to make progress, especially if you're working towards any athletic or like physical competition or endeavor, right? Yeah, we like need to push our capacity. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, we can't be quote unquote scared of overtraining and thus not push ourselves to the capacity that we have, because at some point our body's just going to stop adapting. Um, and so this overtraining thing starts to become like a fear mongering Thing where now we're scared to train hard. Right. And I think that coupled with the cycle syncing and the language around like, Oh, don't train too hard during your luteal phase. Or like, you're going to fuck your hormones up. Like, no, you can overreach and you can push those physical limits, but at the same time, you need to be fueling your body adequately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, very important nuance there. Yeah. One more thing that I wanted to mention I don't know if this is super relevant, but I just think it's so interesting is there's a little bit more research coming out now inside of the low energy availability research um, that's looking at actually within day energy of deficiency. So that's okay. Say that your maintenance calories are 2,500, you're eating 2,500 calories a day, but there is a period throughout the day where your body is in an energy deficit, whether it's because you haven't eaten enough at that point, or maybe you like trained and then you didn't eat soon enough after, or maybe your meals are just too small. Um, and I'm trying to think of the language here. Even if you're eating enough calories throughout the day, if your body has periods where it is in an energy deficit throughout that day, it can still have negative effects on your menstrual function. 
Um, oh, interesting. It's almost just, as if fasting isn't for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> and that's part of the like argument against fasting for women um, mm-hmm. is because of that, right? So yeah, what's the term that came up in all of those studies? Like uh, pulsitivity, I feel like was the yeah. hormone pulsitivity and it's like yeah. impact. Yeah. Anyways, that's a whole other thing, but there's like yeah. a whole genre of research around um, like how we need a continuous energy influx to yeah. maintain um, proper hormone release. Yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean we need to be eating 5 billion times a day. I know that doesn't work for everyone's schedule, but if you're eating less frequent meals, like those need to be big and they need to be calorie dense um, and in a relatively good macronutrient breakdown um, in order to maintain that energy throughout the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of one of the studies I read this morning was saying that a lot of um, women will eat more frequently throughout the day, but they're eating like super small snack type meals that aren't actually giving them enough calories, or they're focusing on like such high quality foods that like even though they're eating frequently, their body's still not getting like that energy surplus that it needs. Um, and they're still in an energy deficit, even if they're eating like six meals a day, which was super interesting. interesting. There's like that trend right now that it's like, a, is it called a girl, girl dinner? Meal? Girl yeah. dinner? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That instantly made me think of that. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, I'm going to eat a plate of pickles and some yeah. and rice cakes on the side. Yeah. Fucking TikTok just needs to die. Yeah, but like also some uh, of the things are really funny. Okay. Like well, a girl nutrition meal, like on is very TikTok. funny. Pardon? <laughs> a girl dinner, like that's hilarious. I know, but it's just like, okay, come on. Let's like yeah, promote yeah, yeah. healthy relationships with food. <laughs> Anywho, so let's move into, okay, now we know kind of what's going on. Um, What are some yeah, considerations? Let's, yeah, let's clarify here because I think like talking about that, there's so much nuance. It does feel messy to kind of interpret for like, what does that mean for me as an individual? Right. Um, so maybe saying like, first and foremost, your symptoms, how you feel about fluctuations in your cycle and how you feel that that might or might not impact your performance is individual that we're not absolutely not gaslighting anybody who feels really shitty. And yet there is no objective science that says right now, at least there is reason to believe that this is actually happening. Mm -hmm. at a physiological level like your feelings and interpretation of your symptoms are real and there is no actual mechanism right now that's physiological across the board saying your performance decreases at x or y time in your cycle yeah and thus all of these considerations that we're going to go through are going to be highly individual and Mm -hmm. i mean every research study ends with there's no conclusive evidence and an individual mm-hmm. approach is recommended. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, there's no conclusive evidence and an individual approach is recommended. And here are some things to consider in your individual <laughs> approach. Perfect. Um, Let's some off. Okay. So we're just going to like go through a big list here. By no means do you need to implement all of these again, based on what phases of your cycle you feel negative impacts in you may want to consider some of these things. Um, So first one was hydration. Um, So hydration across the board is really important, but some of the research does suggest that having a carbohydrate and electrolyte supplement 
um, can help performance, especially during the menstruating phase. So early follicular phase, when you are bleeding, um, I typically like to use those also through my luteal phase, um, just because I'm bloated and I have a harder time, like getting food in during that time. Um, so supplementing with like some sort of drink can be really, really helpful. Um, but research suggests during the early follicular phase that it does transfer to increases in performance. Um, next one on the list. Using RPE. So rate of perceived exertion. Rate is like a relative perceived <laughs> exertion. Rate of perceived exertion. So that's like essentially your subjective measure of how hard you're pushing. Generally, we think of it on a scale of like one to 10, where 10 is like, you've gone so far you're literally failing and could not push like mm -hmm. you're deep in the pain cave could not push any harder and one is like you know you're still laying down haven't gotten up from your nap this afternoon yeah um and so using that as a metric to like rate on a daily basis can be helpful to collect some data I have some clients right now who were using that um, as a way to determine like what that training session was like but it's also helpful to like look back on your session and be like hmm, could I have pushed harder how easy or how challenging would it have been to push harder or like today I was at a 10 and I wasn't nearly as strong or as fast or as um you know, couldn't maintain my performance as long as maybe last week or whatever. So RPE can definitely change. You mm -hmm. could be a 10 out of 10 today and not hitting the weights you hit last week, even though yeah. you're maybe only pushing at an eight last week. Yeah. I find it helpful, like from a CrossFit or weightlifting standpoint, like if you're, if you are following a program and you are bleeding and your program calls for reps at 80%, right? Mm -hmm. I might say, okay, I'm going to do reps at an eight RPE today instead of 80%. And my eight RPE might actually translate to like 65% of my one rep max. Mm -hmm. Right. But then at least I know that I've pushed the intensity quote unquote, that I'm supposed to push that day based on the capacity that I have. Mm -hmm. so, I've yeah. started to use it like as a before and after. So I'll go in and think like, you know, where am I at? before training what do I think I'm going to be able to achieve based on how I feel and then I'll rate it after and think like how did I how um like what was my RPE actually and oftentimes it's different and I've noticed a trend in myself that I underestimate what I'm going to be able to accomplish but once I actually get in there it becomes a lot easier to push hard which is I think like counter right. to what I used to believe yeah. and really like encouraging you talked about that in an Instagram post, how that especially happens during your luteal phase. Yeah, I meant I wrote a little thing down below here after our considerations, but just to like reflect on if we've seen our interpretation of that change for ourselves. And that's been a big piece for me. I think too, I wrote down here, the style of training might impact this as well. And I've noticed a huge shift in how my performance feels when I was doing CrossFit versus now that I'm bodybuilding, I used to feel so fucking flat, gassed, like under recovered. And I was like in that stage where I was like, I'm irritable as fuck. So there's no way I even want to go train when I was doing CrossFit. And now the luteal phase is far and beyond my best training phase, which right. is counter to like, you know, even what the research would suggest where strength is maybe impacted the most. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay. So another consideration might be focusing on minimums. And so what this could look like is if you know that you have a phase where like subjectively, you just feel like shit, maybe you're super tired. Maybe you have issues with your sleep quality, which is another confounding variable that we didn't talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you're irritable as fuck. Like maybe you don't want to be around people in a gym focusing Ooh, on that's minimums, a big one. <laughs> minimums during that time. Right. So I have a client right now, she has really bad PMDD. Um, and she, so we've talked about, okay, during that week before your period, which is when her symptoms are really high, she has a lot of like mental health symptoms during that time. Um, we're focusing on movement instead of exercise. And we have a goal for X amount of movement per day and movement could look like all of these different things. Mm-hmm. based on how she's feeling that day. Right. So then she has those minimums to hit, but if she doesn't feel like going to the gym, she can go for a walk and she's at least still like taking care of her body, you know, feeling good about that. Um, instead of like doing absolutely nothing for that full week, which is sometimes where we can get, if we have this all or nothing mentality, where we either need to go fucking kill ourselves in a workout or do nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just, thought about this this was a big piece in our last podcast was like how do we make like training adjustments if need be and again like the research suggests that a like clients need to feel comfortable coming to coaches to say like hey this is how I'm feeling I need a like adjustment here whether that's nutritionally or in terms of their programming um but then also like recognizing what feels better for you and where your capacity maybe is and how that Mm -hmm. changes. So in the last podcast, we talked a lot about how maybe in the luteal phase, if you're not feeling like strength is going to be there, maybe you're not like testing in that week. Um, Maybe you're not doing really high intensity Metcons. Maybe instead you're doing some like lower intensity cardio, focusing on endurance. And again, the research doesn't suggest that that's necessary But again, if you feel like that, a training adjustment would at least have you be able to show up in the gym versus take a whole week off. Mm -hmm. Like, let's do that. Yeah. Um, Or if we need to adjust expectations, adjust RPE, um, adjust percentages, adjust movements or skills. I don't know about you, Sarah, but like, I remember just like trying to do anything like highly technical in my luteal phase. Like if I was trying to work on muscle ups or something, I was like, they just felt so shitty. Yeah. And I would just get really frustrated in my luteal phase. Yeah. Um, so being able to have those conversations with your coaches and make necessary training adjustments could be helpful. And I will say that just because you made it in one cycle or for a certain period of time doesn't mean you always have to make those adjustments. You might find that as lifestyle factors shift, as stress maybe changes, um, you maybe need to make more adjustments or fewer adjustments or maybe none at all. Yeah. Maybe none at all Mm -hmm. is a thing because I think in this conversation where a lot of us based on what's in the media right now, just feel like we have to make these adjustments. I think that's what your post talked to talked about too, is like, you used to feel like you had to make those adjustments. And then you started actually paying attention to like how you were feeling and performing. And you realize like, okay, at least in your luteal phase, you, you don't actually need to make those adjustments. Right. And obviously that's Nicola's experience. It's not going to be the same for everyone, but taking the time to build that awareness and, you know, trying to see what would happen if you don't make the adjustment versus when you do and how that feels, um, over multiple cycles, very important. Yeah. I mean, just like 
I don't know how often you came across these posts, but it would be like um, someone saying you need to be doing yoga and light stretching during your luteal phase, like take time off the gym, you know, that kind of stuff. And I don't think I ever fell into that camp, but I certainly was like, oh, I definitely need to adjust my training to just like support my body better. And turns out that's not always the case. Yeah. Um, Okay. So these next few considerations are just around nutrition. Um, And so big one uh, tied to the low energy availability conversation is just eating enough calories and not dieting forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if you are pursuing body composition goals or in a calorie deficit, making sure you have a good timeline on that, um, and not being in that calorie deficit for extended periods of time. Um, and then really taking time in your maintenance phase to fuel your body and make sure you're eating enough and reap the benefits that it has on performance in that time. Um, and then another focus, and this is especially important during a calorie deficit is just focusing on your pre and post-workout nutrition. Um, so if our calories are limited, we need to make sure that before and after our workout, we are giving our body, especially for most modalities, um, unless, well, even if you are an endurance runner, um, or cyclist or whatever other endurance sports, um, you weird people. <laughs> yeah, I was like, did you just pause like, to what? think about what else is not Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, not for me. Um, what what was I saying? Oh, carbohydrates are important in your pre and post exercise period, right? So, um, some of the research even suggests that the co- consumption of carbs prior to exercise can help negate any of the menstrual cycle changes that are showing in those performance metrics. Um, So even if you are someone who does experience those on a subjective and objective level, consuming adequate carbohydrates around your training can help negate those. Um, Mm -hmm. So something, yeah. Something else we talked about in the last podcast and I still do with some clients, um, even though, again, there's no research to back it up that we need higher carbs in or higher food in general in our luteal phase, if adding extra carbs on training days or just adding extra food in general is going to feel helpful for a client and keep them adherent or keep them mm-hmm. from going like, fuck it. Yeah. The, that might be helpful. Same thing with like, maybe you are implementing a little bit of a diet break on the same week that we experience the highest cravings or the highest hunger. Yeah. If that's going to help a client feel better, perform well, keep showing up, that might be a better option than trying to just keep things the same. Again, that's going to yeah. vary for every client, every cycle. Um, but for some of my clients, I'll give them the option to add an extra, say 30 to 50 grams of carbs on yeah. training days in their late luteal phase, early follicular phase, yeah, if too. they need it. And then yeah. in that, we're giving them the freedom to like um, make their those body. Kind of like self-awareness um, yeah. observations for themselves. Mm-hmm. And if it feels good, they're doing it instead of being like, oh, fuck, I have to stick to like these low um, calories, even though my hunger is through the roof and my cravings are sky high. So yeah. if it helps adherence, if it helps mentally, physically, whatever it is, then those adjustments can be helpful too. Yeah, big time. Um, okay, we talked about style of training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so that could impact things for sure, yeah. um, depending on you, what you like to do as well. Um, but I think just to conclude, like, ultimately this is going to be very individual. You might want to make adjustments. You might not. 
um, if you're kind of working by yourself, but for coaches, while yes, we want to be keeping updated on the science and so many of us preach like evidence-based, blah, 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 blah. I think that can be problematic when we're going balls deep into science, um, especially when there is no conclusive evidence either way and promoting, you know, a misapplication of the science, I think. Um, and just because- ignoring or ignoring or gaslighting your client. Yeah. Right. right. Like that's not, no. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a provide a space where your clients can feel comfortable coming to you and discussing this, um, without you making them feel like they're bad or wrong for experiencing something that science says doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and then being open to making adjustments and helping them navigate that, whether that's like, uh, decreasing volume, or maybe it's like having a conversation around like, Hey, what if you tried going in? Right. You know, what if we don't change anything and we just see how it feels? Because sometimes, again, we can conflate discomfort for impairment in performance. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not a not real. Yeah, yeah, that's a conversation where it's like, hey, here's what the research is showing. We also have this subjective side of things. Is it possible, or do you think, or have you considered the way that you're? thoughts about it or the the way that you're feeling about it might be impacting it and what would it look like to try this and see what happens right and and if we're totally wrong so be it if we need to make adjustments amazing honestly that's a good thing because we learn something exactly yeah I kind of wish I had had a coach at that time in my life being like okay you actually just need to show up and see how it goes versus letting me off the hook every time yeah 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 So that was deep. Hopefully some good takeaways. Yeah. Deep, but also like a roundabout because there is no, yeah, we like things that are cut and dry, but as we've learned in nutrition, in fitness, there's no real one thing to do. So just learning how to apply it to yourself, apply it to your clients, have the conversations. That's what she's all about. Yeah. Gray area, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon's favorite color. (sighs) um okay should we do a fuck yes and fuck no mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i have a fuck no okay go for it i already told you molly ate one of brad's <laughs> airpods this morning so we are waiting for an airpod to show up in her poop and fuck and we discussed is it worth keeping the airpod <laughs> when you find it in the poop because like it will inevitably have shit in it forever yeah I think it won't work anymore. I was, I Googled it because I was like, do we need to take her to the vet? Yeah. Um, But the thing was like the stomach acids and like Mm, just moving through the digestive tract. It's like sitting in fucking water. Yeah. 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 So probably not going to work anymore. So that's fine. But hopefully she, otherwise I feel like, I mean, if it does work, I mean, you said you told Brad to like turn the music up really loud to see if you could hear it in her. But I feel like if it does come out, I mean, even if it works like that's an ear infection waiting to yeah (laughs) so disgusting is there like pink eye of the ear oh probably yeah ew gross yeah ear infections suck too haven't had one for so long yeah knock on wood okay you got a fuck yes yeah um I'm actually I realized I'm starting to lose track of like the things I've said are fuck yeses and I'm like man how many times can I say the same thing um, have I talked about my flower stealing? No, you haven't. Not okay. on the podcast. 
Okay. Well, I have been like when I go on my morning walks through going around and looking at people who have like gardens that like encroach on the sidewalk and taking note of like when new flowers are going to bloom and then I go and snip them and steal them. (laughs) It's on public property. Well, yeah, I'm not going to go like, well, I've thought about it, but I won't actually go onto someone's property to cut their flowers. And I'm not like taking a bundle. I'm taking like one when there's like plenty of them. I'm not going to take like the only rose that's growing. I'm not a monster. Yeah. But there are some old men on the street with like these massive hydrangeas. And I'm like, that little old man is not going to care if I take one. Right. Or like won't even notice. for some flowers, when you clip them, it encourages other growth. So I'm like, right. I'm doing these people a favor. Right. <laughs> anyway, so oh. that's been fun. And I have like little roots I go on now to check on the status of the blooms. Yeah. Cute. <laughs> um, but my girlfriend Meg also has like a beauty, like Dahlia little yeah. backyard. And her, the dahlias she's been growing this summer are so gorgeous. And she just gave me a bundle last week. And dahlias last so long. Like, they're yeah. so pretty. That's why they're um, so expensive. Are they? They're I've never expensive. purchased them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You would know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll just uh, hope that she continues to give me them. If not, I'll steal the random blooms I find from the old men in the neighborhood. Yeah. But, yeah. Having fresh, fresh flowers. flowers are so nice. And you buy them for yourself. I never purchase them for myself, but yeah. I do steal them for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Brad buys them for me a lot now, so I don't have to buy them for myself. Really? That's yeah. nice. I don't think, yeah. no shade to Brandon. He does so many other things, but I don't think he's ever been a flower guy. No. That's okay. Some people just aren't. No, he just makes the best rice. That's what yeah. he does. I always <laughs> miss when he's gone because we make rice the same way. I literally taught him how to make rice in a pot without using a rice cooker. But there's something he does. He makes the rice so good. Yeah. It's with love. Oh, yeah. Maybe. It's with spite too. Because then he's like, <laughs> I made it so good. Why can't you do it the same? I'm like, Fuck. I remember, I don't know if this was on the podcast, but I remember one time there was like a week where they both, so Brandon <gasps> ate the rest yeah. of the rice and Brad also ate the rest of the rice and then didn't make more. Mm-hmm. And Nicola yeah. and I were both so pissed because we were like, those fuckers, like when you're done, make some more. It's not well, that hard. It's like, to me, it's the same as when you take all the ice and you don't yeah. fill the ice tray. Yeah. Like exactly. rice and ice, the two staples. Yeah. You just need to refill as soon as they're gone. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well I'm going to go, wrap it up. Yeah, I'm going to go enter ovulation in a few days here, see how training goes, you know, Perfect. that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. See if I get my, oh, you know what we didn't talk about is the coolest part not coolest did you know there's a name for the cramp you get around ovulation well some people don't get the cramp but I definitely get the cramp what is it called again it's a German word Mittelschmerz (laughs) (laughs) and it means like tiny cramp yeah and I don't know how many people get it um I definitely do and it's one of those things that it's so acute and you just like feel it and you're like "Mm, Mittelschmerz (laughs) yeah (laughs) what is there a name for the butt cramps like in your butthole the what like, don't you ever get those cramps, like, in your butthole? Um, no. Period-related? Like, cycle-related? Yeah. yeah. Ask Googling. Ask cramps. Like, well, I think it would be, like, butthole Anal, well, we'll use the scientific term here. Anal cramps? Oh. <laughs> Rectum cramps? Why is my butthole cramping? 
Oh, mm. it talks about IBD. Maybe I have IBD. Okay, TMI. No, Why do I get says... butthole cramps on my period? Yeah, it says it's likely due to hormones and like the contractions. Yeah. That like, what is it? It's it the Charlie horse your... of your ass. You did not just read that. <laughs> yeah. An anal surgeon said it. The terminology is proctalgia fugax. Oh, we just read the same thing. Proctalgia. Oh, due to the release of prostaglandins during your period. Right. Right. So that's what makes you like expel your uterine lining and shit. Okay. So you're normal, I guess. Yeah. I knew they like blew up on TikTok. And then I started talking about them. Yeah. So I guess TikTok is good for some things. Um, yeah, it normalizes your butt cramps. Yeah, exactly. Good, 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 good. <laughs> yeah, those are fuck no. Thank you, much. TikTok. I can't believe you never got those before. Well, it's like your I butt mean... is like getting sucked into like <laughs> your bowels. Like it's like, yeah, it's it fucking sucks. Anyways, if you're listening and you well, I wish there was those, a cute... please send us a message. Or if you speak German and can translate. <laughs> um butthole cramps into yeah. German so we can have Schmerz and whatever butthole cramps is uh, when I go to Germany on my honeymoon I'll ask some people oh that's definitely on your to-do list <laughs> yeah okay great we'll circle back perfect okay well hopefully you have learned something or dispelled some fun. myths yeah or at least had fun yeah <laughs> great that's how well those are like the goals of our podcast yeah. always yeah. learn something proved yourself wrong had fun have fun um okay well that's that so catch on the flippity flip yeah who knows when we'll record another episode no just kidding just just kidding just kidding we're getting better at being regular (laughs) yeah until like two weeks from now when i get yeah we're a 21 to 35 day podcast cycle yeah (laughs) it's okay it's normal it's normal yeah thanks for being being here with us yeah okay well like sarah said catch you on the flippy flip and have a great day bye-bye Bye.